You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Last Sunday, we ended a six-week sermon series in 2 Peter chapter 1, a series entitled Make Every Effort. Make Every Effort, looking at 2 Peter 1, particularly verses 5 through 7, where we're exhorted to make every effort to add to our faith virtue and add to our virtue knowledge and knowledge self-control and self-control steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love and this morning I want to start a new series uh, that will take us through the end of second Peter a series entitled waiting for the end of the world waiting for the end of the world really the end of the world Guess we've heard concerns like this before. Concerns about things like overpopulation. A couple hundred years ago, an English economist named Maltus, more recently Paul Ehrlich in the population bomb in the 1960s, predicted that in the next couple decades, hundreds of millions of people would die, that the earth couldn't possibly keep producing food fast enough for how fast the population would grow world would essentially come to an end. Certainly had concerns that the same thing would happen with war. Some of you would remember, perhaps more have seen the movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev and Castro putting missiles in Cuba, and were worried on the brink for 13 days, on the brink of potentially world-ending nuclear war. We've heard concerns about ecological disaster. We're running out of fossil fuels, climate change, the world as we know it will end. And of course, most of us have heard the story of Chicken Little, and the sky is falling. But these dire warnings generally haven't seemed to materialize. Overpopulation hasn't actually happened. There are fewer and fewer farmers producing more and more food. Many parts of the world have negative birth rates. It doesn't appear that overpopulation is going to end our planet anytime soon. Nuclear war hasn't happened either, although I suppose it always could. But so far, that hasn't happened. Ecological disaster hasn't been nearly as desire or nearly as dire as some have predicted. We haven't run out of fossil fuels. America is inconceivably to us 20, 30 years ago, America is an oil exporting country. We produce more than we need. It's remarkable. And whatever the realities of climate change may be, the results haven't been nearly as apocalyptic as Al Gore warned us that they would. Although the dangers perhaps are there. And Chicken Little is, well, it's a fable. A children's story. The idea that the sky is falling, that the world is coming to an end, sounds more than a little crazy. I mean, we know that it could happen, but we don't really think it will happen. If you see someone on the side of the road holding a sign that says, the world is coming an end, 
coming to an end, you, you don't think to yourself, well, I'm glad someone's getting the message out there. We think, the guy's, the guy's a little crazy. We're waiting for things. We're waiting for the weekend. We're waiting for warmer weather. We're waiting for the stock market to turn back around. We're waiting for retirement. We're waiting endlessly for the Tigers to get good again. We're waiting for things, but not really for the end of the world. But, but waiting for the end of the world is the big concern of this letter, Second Peter. This whole letter is building toward the conclusion that we are or, or should be waiting for the end of the world. As we'll see, there were end-of-the-world deniers in Peter's day. And they were causing a big problem. I look at chapter 3. We're going to be in chapter 1 mostly this morning, but look at chapter 3 as we get toward the conclusion of the letter. We'll see this theme pop up. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter finishes up this letter reminding them the world's going to end. Now we'll get in chapter 3, we'll get into more detail and consider what Peter and other parts of the Bible tell us about what that looked like. But the point is, a cataclysmic, world-altering change. It will happen. He says, we're waiting for it. It's a remarkable and often overlooked truth. A key part of living as a Christian in this world is waiting well for the next one. A key part of living as a Christian in this world is waiting well for the next one. Now, now I understand right from the start that, that in one sense, we all, if you're a Christian, you grew up in church, read the Bible, this, this is something we know, and it still sounds, even to me as I say it, kind of crazy. So much of our life, so much of our Christian life and our church life has effectively blocked this reality out of sight. We're very focused, very narrow-minded, very, as we'll see later in chapter 1, nearsighted, obsessed with now, obsessed with the near future. And Peter's concern in writing this letter is long-term, look down the road, this is coming, we are or should be waiting. What does that mean for us? Peter's not the only New Testament writer to write about this. You know that, right? Jesus talks about this in 
Mount of Olives in Matthew 24 and 25 as he speaks to his disciples. Paul talks about it frequently, especially in his letters to the Thessalonians. The writer to Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. John in the book of Revelation, you're familiar with that, talks extensively about what is to come. In a lot of ways, the book of Revelation is about how to live as a Christian in this world as we look forward to the next. Well, over the next seven weeks, we're going to work through Peter and see how Peter, in this short letter, shows his readers, shows us what it looks like both to wait well and to wait not well for the end of the world and the coming of the next. So this morning, I want to pick back up in 1 Peter 1 and look at how we ought to be waiting with diligence. That's the title this morning, Waiting with Diligence. So look back at 2 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to focus on verses 8 to 15 this morning, but I'll start in verse 5 to get a little context. 2 Peter 1, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forever lacks these qualities so nearsighted he's blind. Having forgotten, he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look at your word that you would guide us into its truth. Lord, I think for most of us, I know for me, that living in light of the end of the world would be a pretty radical mind shift. I know how obsessed we can be with right here, right now. And Father, you call us to lift up our eyes, to see with faith what you've promised will happen, and to wait in ways that would honor and please you. So Lord, I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd give us wisdom and understanding from your word, and you'd give us the grace and power and conviction in our souls to, to change in the ways that you call us to change, making us more like your son more pleasing to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I mean by waiting with diligence. Living now like it will matter then. Living in the present like it will matter at the end. Like there's a connection between what I do today it matters what I do today when the end comes. Living today with purpose and intentionality because the end will come. You know, if you look 
ground read and this kind of stuff online you'll see sometimes uh, things about these these preppers or survivalists who are uh, concerned that there could be someday this you know massive social political economic uh, ecological disaster and they want to be prepared they're prepping for that day and so you go online if you type in prepper into google it'll type show you all this stuff all the uh, there's lots of people that will sell you things to get ready for that day when it comes you can buy food kits and supply all sorts of things to prepare they are extra careful extra prepared for a future event that may or may not happen of course you also have in the world the opposite of that the attitude that the bible tells us they had in noah's day destruction is coming Noah is preaching nobody is listening and their attitude is eat drink and marry for tomorrow we may die okay? there could be judgment coming but let's just enjoy ourselves now waiting actively versus waiting passively see that's the problem Peter's confronting when he writes this letter he knows the promises to go back to the Old Testament prophets and, and then are reiterated and expanded upon by Jesus himself. That there is coming a day of judgment, that Jesus is going to return, that this world as we know it is going to end. He knows that that's true. He's taught these people this. They know it too, but there's other people speaking into their ear as well. Uh, look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of of creation. Peter says, look, this is what's going to happen. We knew it was going to happen. It's happening now. It's happening to you. People are coming. They're looking around saying, I don't think he's going to happen. I don't think he's coming. We've heard these prophecies. We've heard these promises, but nothing's changing. He's not coming. And what we see here is that that has a big impact on how people live that the reality of Jesus' return, the reality of the end of the world, changes actions, attitudes, priorities, values, lifestyle. Now what happens is these people have come, we'll look about this more in a few weeks, but they come scoffing, following their own sinful desires. It, it works out really well for them. It's really convenient because I don't actually, they don't actually want to obey God and His Word anyway. And so it works out really well to say, you know what, I don't think there is going to be a I don't think I am going to ever have to answer for my attitude, my actions, and my behaviors. You know what? There's going to be no judgment. And they're telling the people this, and it, it, it draws many people astray. So Peter writes this letter to, to counter this, to show them and convince them that this is wrong, that there will be a judgment that is coming. Peter's basic, basic attitude is this. Live now like it will matter then. Live now like the way you live will matter in that day. 
in chapter 3, verse 11. After he gets done talking with us, he says, Since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Since the reality of the end of this world, since it's true, what sort of people ought you to be? Peter expects that the reality of the coming judgment and return of Christ matters and impacts how we live today. What sort of people ought you to be? Living now like it will matter then. The scoffer's basic attitude is there probably isn't going to be a then. So it doesn't matter how you live now. What's our attitude? Are we more like Peter? Are we more like the scoffers? I'm concerned. For you and for me. I suspect that we, we officially, technically believe like Peter. Oh yes, we know that it's coming. But I'm concerned that practically, day to day, we're more like the scoffers. We live as though the world isn't going to end. We live as though we won't have to answer for the way we live. We may even make religious, gospel-sounding excuses for it. Well, Jesus is going to forgive me no matter what, so it doesn't really matter. Peter says, in light of these things, what sort of people ought you to be? We need to live now like it will matter then, because it will. So what does that look like? Well, what it looks like in the first place, back in chapter 1, is it looks like people who possess these qualities, these virtues, virtues that we've spent the last six weeks looking at. That's why Peter urges them to grow in these things. The person who possesses these qualities is preparing well for the end. He says in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and they're increasing, you're growing in these. Verse 10, in the middle of verse 10, it says of these qualities, if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. People preparing for the end, people living now like it will matter then, are people who are putting on these virtues with God's help, by His Spirit. Now, here's what jumps out at me from this. Waiting with diligence for the end of the world, for the coming kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is as much about the kind of people we're becoming as it is the kind of things we're doing. It's as much about the kind of people that we're becoming, people that possess these virtues. It's about our character first before it's about our actions. It's not a matter of, oh, Jesus is coming back, the world is coming to an end, just tell me, just tell me what i got to do. I just, need to ch- I just want to check off my list, and so I'm... But it's, it's more than just what our actions. It's, it's the kind of people we are supposed to become. I, I know those things are related, closely related, but it's important to see that God is working in us before he works through us. So when we consider these virtues or qualities we've been looking at for the last six weeks, we need to see clearly they're not just nice things that would kind of help us construct a spiritually respectable life, but they're a vital component of how we prepare for the end. This is what Peter says. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and 
unfruitful. They keep you from being ineffective. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 20 uh, about a, a man who, who owns a, a, a vineyard, a farm, and he, he goes to a town and he gets a bunch of workers from the square and takes them out to his field, and later he realizes he needs more workers, and he comes back, and he finds a bunch of men standing around, and it says they, they are idle. It's the same word here. They're lounging around. It's the middle of the day. They, they ought to be out working, providing for their families, but they're, you know, they're in the city square, middle of the day, playing on their phones, you know, eating popcorn, whatever they did, not doing anything. And the guy comes back and says, why aren't you working? Why are you idle? Peter says, if you're growing in these, it will keep you from being ineffective or idle as we wait for these in the world. That's not how we want to wait. Lounging around while there's work to be done and other people are doing while we play on our phones, eat popcorn. He said, no, you, these growing in these keeps you from being ineffective. Without these qualities, you're on the sidelines. You're not even in the game. You're doing your own thing. So you this growing in these virtues keeps us from being ineffective. It keeps us involved in what God is doing. And it keeps us, he says next, from being unfruitful. From being unfruitful. That same word is the one Jesus uses when he tells the story of the, the soils, the, the man who goes out to sow, and he sows in different kinds of soils and in different results, and he, he sows into thorny ground, and that thorny ground, it, it takes root, but the, the seed gets choked out by the thorns, by the cares of the world. And it just, it never, it, it sprouts, but it never produces anything of value. It's unfruitful. There's nothing there that is ever useful to anybody or anything. Peter says that's what a Christian who doesn't grow in these virtues is. They are unfruitful. The Christian life has nothing to show. And then he says in verse 9, we might summarize it, they're not just ineffective and unfruitful. Those who lack these qualities are ungrateful. He says, verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he's blind. Having forgotten, he was cleansed from his former sins. This is a person who's been brought out of sin and its punishment has been taken out from, they were spiritually dead and it become spiritually, it seems spiritually alive, taken from death to life, cleansed from their sins by God's gracious act in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and, that, and now this person is unconcerned, unmotivated, not putting forth any effort to grow in these virtues. And he says that person is so nearsighted, he's, he's blind. Like, well, well, you, you, you've already forgotten that you've been cleansed from your sin? You, you, you make so little of it, it's, you've lost sight of that, it's no longer part of who you are or, or what you value or what you prioritize? He's ungrateful. This person is presumptuous of, of God's grace. Presumptuous. These virtues keep us from being ineffective, unfruitful, and ungrateful. So what does Peter instruct them then to do? Two main things. First, to live this life in 
And secondly, to leave this legacy. To live this life and to leave this legacy. Look at verse 10. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. We're waiting diligently. Wait with diligence is our title this morning. He says, be all the more diligent. Now that diligent is actually the same word that we had back in verse 5, which said, which there is translated, make every effort. Back there it was make every effort to supplement your faith. Here we could say, brothers, be, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Make effort. Be diligent. It's not passive. It's not, you know, the end of the world. Maybe come and eat, drink, and be merry tomorrow. We may. No, he's, he doesn't want them to be ineffective, unfruitful, ungrateful. Live now like it'll matter then. Be diligent, he says, to confirm your calling and election. Now, Peter's doing a very interesting thing here. Calling and election are things that God does. Going back to the very earliest parts of the Bible, calling and election have to do with choosing. So one of the most notable places we see that early in the Bible is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Israel has come out of Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses says this to the people. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It's a remarkable thing that God has done. The earth is full of people. Everywhere you could imagine, there are people in the world. And Moses said, out of all the people in the world, God has come and chosen you. That you would be his special people. He would be your God and you would be his people. He's given you his word and his law. He's revealed himself to you. He's even, he's even in the tabernacle come down to live privilege could give him a big head. It could be like, wow, God looked over all the world and saw how awesome we are and decided that we would be his people. But that's not what's happening. Because in the very next verse, Moses says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. In other words, God didn't choose you because you were great. He, he chose you because you were the least great. No, he says, the Lord has loved you because the Lord loves you. He just loves to show grace. He loves to set his love on people. He loves to set his love on the least likely people. The people who say to themselves, well, God would never love me. God would never have me in his family. God loves to set his love on the humble and needy and undeserving and to bypass the proud and the self-righteous and the ones who think that God owes them. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 tells us, God had set his electing and saving love on his people. And so his people should feel enormously grateful and enormously and undeservedly loved. But, but calling an election, 
whether in the, of Israel in the Old Testament or of the church in the New Testament, are things that God does. But Peter isn't so much concerned here about what God has done in calling and electing his people. Now, he believes that, to be sure. But it's not the point he's emphasizing here. Here, his instruction to them is to confirm their calling and election. See, see calling and election are spiritual realities that we can't see. We can't see that. The reality isn't something that you can go somewhere and observe. So how would we know that we had them? Peter says, confirm them. Confirm your calling and election. Mark uses that word in the very last verse of Mark's gospel. Jesus ascends to heaven after his resurrection. And then he says, the disciples went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message, confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So here's what happened. The disciples would go out, the apostles would go out, and they'd begin to preach. And they would say, God has sent his son Jesus. And he's raised him from the dead. Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah. He's the one we have to put our hope and trust in. God has raised him from the dead and given new life, and he's saving a people for himself through Jesus. And the people would say, well, how do we know that's true? And then the disciples, by the power of God's Spirit, would perform miracles. You, you've read the book of Acts. Dead people are raised to life. Hard-hearted people are changed and softened. People are healed. And the miracles that people could see helped confirm God's work through Jesus that people couldn't see. How do I know that? I'm going to show you by power. We go all the way back to the Old Testament. Moses goes to Pharaoh, right? And, and he says, um, God says, tell him to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is this God that I should do that? And, and Moses tells him and then throws his staff down. The signs confirm the message. That's kind of what Peter's saying here when he says, confirm your calling and election. We can't see that. We can't see God's eternal work in calling people to himself. What we can see is the fruit of it, the result of it, a life growing in these virtues. And as we grow in these virtues that are listed here in faith and virtue and knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, all of these things, as we see growth in those, we see, we receive confirmation. Our hearts are encouraged and strengthened to see God is working in my life. What does it save people because they grow in virtue? But that growing in virtue gives evidence of that salvation. And we need that confirmation. We need that kind of encouragement. We need that kind of strength if we were going to press forward to the end in following Christ. Because as you know, it's not always going to be easy. It's going to be hard. It will often be difficulties. We need the strength that that brings. That's why Peter says if we diligently practice these qualities, Peter says will never fail, will never fall. If you're growing in these, you're not going to fall away. You're not going to abandon Christ. You're not going to abandon faith. You'll persevere to the end. And the encouragement that you're doing so is as you grow in these qualities, not perfection, but growth. On that day at the end, verse 11 tells us, there will be richly provided for you 
and entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we say we're waiting for the end of the world, what we're really saying is we're waiting for Christ to come. We're not waiting so much for an event, but for a person. Because when he comes, we'll do away with this world that's been corrupted by sin and suffering and death. And he will make it new as we grow in our assurance. We will grow in our assurance as we live the life God calls us to live, lives of holiness and godliness. So we wait for diligence with the end as we work and strive by God's grace and the help and power of His Spirit and Word to grow in these virtues. But there's one other level, not just living the life myself, but concerned that others would do so also. Not just living the life, but leaving this legacy. Look at verse 12 in chapter 1. Peter says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them are established in the truth you have. He says, I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. He says, and I will make every effort. There's that same word translated diligence earlier. I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So here's Peter writing to them. He says, my time here on this life, in this world, is not long. I'm going to die soon. He knows that. He says, the Lord's made it clear to me. But, but I'm going to make every effort to make sure that when I'm gone, you don't forget what I'm telling you here. How's he going to do that? He, he writes in this letter. He writes him this letter. He says, you're going to have this letter, and you're going to be reminded of how you're supposed to live, and you're going to be reminded of the reality that this world is going to end. Christ is going to come. He's going to return, set up his kingdom. He goes, and I, 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 my job is to remind you of that, to make sure that you don't forget. I'll write you a letter. Make copies. Distribute it. Make sure it doesn't go away. It didn't. We have it right here. They made copies. as we wait for the end of the world, as we live now like it will matter then. We, we need to live the life ourselves, but, but I think like Peter, we need to be concerned that others with us will live that life as well. That we will remind others and remind each other. It makes me wonder, in the ways that we well, not just the ways that we talk and teach, but in the ways that we live. Are we living lives now as though what we do today, where we go, how we spend our time, what we spend our money on, what we prioritize, do they reflect the reality that this world is coming to an end, that Christ will return, and that what we do now will matter then? Or, or are our lives so narrowly focused, so short-sighted, we're investing everything in right here, everything right now. I wonder what lesson, I wonder what sense our children get from us. I wonder what sense we give each other. I wonder what our, our non-believing friends or neighbors or co-workers would think about what our values and priorities are. You know, as we think about waiting for the end of the world, as we think about the fact that a key part of living as a Christian in this world is waiting well for the next world, I was thinking about this this week. I, I realized how, even in the church, 
more in this house. The world is coming to an end. We know it, but I don't know if we know it. I don't know if we live like it's true. And I'm afraid that the result would be that we begin to adopt this coffer's attitude. Nothing seems to be happening. Nothing seems to be changing. I've lived my whole life and Jesus hasn't come back yet. Does it really matter? Only God help us to wait with diligence, to, to strive hard with God's help, power of His Spirit, prayer and the Word to, to grow in these virtues that we've talked about over these last several weeks. God grows us in these to prepare us. It would be strange, it would be strange if, if the way we got ready for God's kingdom was to live a lifestyle with values and priorities and behaviors that were the opposite of the values of God's kingdom. That if we were to adopt all the values that are contrary to God, like we could live this way now and then we'd just flip a switch and when that day comes, that, that would be strange. God is growing us for his kingdom kingdom of his son by making us today more and more like Jesus. And we must pursue that with diligence. Make every effort. So he calls us to. So we must live. Let me pray for you as we prepare to move to the Lord's table. Father, I pray that you would help me and help each person here. Lord, This world will end. Your son, Jesus Christ, will return. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, a kingdom in which righteousness and holiness dwells. Father, we want to be part of that. And I, yet I suspect for many of us it feels so distant that the pressures and challenges and difficulties of life here and now overwhelm our sight obscure our vision and keep us short-sighted, myopically focused on right here and right now. Father, I, I pray that our eyes and our vision would be lifted, that we would see the glory of your Son and his return and the kingdom that is coming and that that in turn would inform how we live right now. That we would live in true righteousness and holiness. That we would possess and grow in these virtues, these qualities that we've read about.